worship team for that. It's always good to learn some new songs, and uh, praise the Lord, they're from God's holy word, so that's uh, always a blessing. Let's pray for our children as they're dismissed to their classrooms, and pray for those over in the nursery as well, and then we can open up our Bibles to uh, Romans chapter 2. So let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to teach your word here this morning, and Lord, we pray that you would uh, do your work through the power of your spirit. Through the power of your word, Lord, we thank you that we can be brought to this place. We thank you for these grounds. We thank you for this building. And Father, we pray that uh, as we um, spend our time here this morning, that our time would be dedicated wholly to you, that we would somehow be able to supernaturally close out the outside world, uh, the busyness of our week, the burdens or the blessings that we've gone through. And Father, just simply focus on you and ask your spirit to give us uh, illumination to help us to understand the words that we read from your holy word. And we pray for our children as well, Lord, that you would uh, minister to them in their Sunday school classes, help them to pay attention to the teachers. And Lord, we pray for the the need of other helpers that we have, Lord, in these uh, uh, Sunday school classes. As the numbers grow, Lord, we pray that you would just lay it upon the hearts of people to step up and and to serve in this capacity. What a wonderful thing to be able to instill the things of God into these young hearts and minds. And Lord, we pray for those in the nursery as well, that you'd watch over them and care for them. And we thank you and we pray that you bless our time together in your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, kids, you're dismissed. You can turn over to Romans chapter 2. can see the need that we have for more helpers. So (laughs) if God lays it upon your heart, um, we would really appreciate that. It's exciting. Well, today we're going to be looking at part three in our series in Romans here. We're going through the book of Romans and uh, we're in uh, part three of a little kind of mini series here in chapter two, God's righteous judgment. And um, I just want to read our text for us, and then we'll do a little bit of review, and, uh, and then we'll head into the, the text for this morning. This morning we'll be focusing on um, verses uh, f- 4 and 5, but I want to read for us so we're all caught up. Uh, chapter 2 of Romans, verse 1 to 5. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness? And his forbearance and his patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment falls and God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Excuse me. So we've been looking at this idea of God's judgment. And today in our society, we think a lot of times that God is a God of love, which he is. 
but he's also a God of holiness, and he also is a God of righteous judgment. And here Paul continues to repeat this word, judgment, 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 over and over in this book. And so it's hard to escape the message that basically if you do not repent of your self-righteous hypocrisy, that's Paul's message to his audience, you're storing up wrath for the day of judgment. And we're looking at six principles of God's judgment that we find in in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 16. And verses 1 to 16 is all one thought on the judgment of God. And God judges all men and women on the basis of these six things. And we've looked at two so far. The first one was knowledge. And we see that in verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Well, where does this knowledge come from? It comes from basically three sources. It comes from natural revelation. It tells us that in Romans chapter 1. It comes from our own conscience that God has put in us. He created us with a conscience. It tells us that in Romans chapter 2, verse 14. And then this knowledge also comes from the law of God or the word of God. He tells us that in Romans chapter 3. And we've looked at all those in the past weeks. And so the first point that we looked at under knowledge was that you're prone self-righteously to judge others for the very same sins that you commit. And self-righteous people make two fatal mistakes. We talked about these in depth, but, or we mentioned them at least, that first of all, they misunderstand the height of God's law, and they also misunderstand the depth of their sin. And so we're all prone sometimes to self-righteously judge others for the very same sins that we commit. And a lot of times self-righteous people or a self-righteous hypocrite judges the sins of others while overlooking their own sins. Or they judge others based on selective standards, not found in God's word. That's known as legalism. Or they're concerned more about the external conformity to certain things than true inner change of the heart, transformation, godliness. And so we want to just remember those things. And we looked at that, and basically self-righteous hypocrisy brings you under the judgment of God. And that was the first principle that we looked at several weeks ago. And then we looked at the second one, which was truth. And it talks about righteous judgment. And in Romans chapter 3, verse 4, Paul says, Let God be true, but every man a what? A liar. In other words, we serve a true God. We serve a God whose judgment is based on truth. He doesn't just make this stuff up as he goes. And that is the the true nature of God, that he will judge everything with knowledge and with truth. And sometimes we don't do that. Sometimes we can't do that because people put on a facade. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, it says that God looks at the heart, but we look at the outward appearance. And so it's so easy to make a judgment call on somebody's outward appearance. And yet, God doesn't do that. He looks right at the heart. And we said basically last uh, two weeks ago that the hypocrite, the person who is judging others while not judging themselves for the very same things, can't avoid being judged. In other words, they can't, they're not going to get away with it. Sometimes they think they're above it. And that was the situation with the Jews that, that Paul was addressing. 
They said, hey, we're, we're of Israel. We, we don't have to fall under the judgment of God, even though they had been there several times. How quickly they forgot. And they presumed that they would not be under the judgment of God, that they would not be held to account. And then secondly, when the hypocrite is judged, he will not be able to stand. He will be condemned. There won't be any excuse. And when he's condemned, he won't be able to avoid being executed. And so the judgment will fall. It will fall rightly. And when God judges somebody, there's, there's no pulling back at that point. There's no appeal. Because God is judging on knowledge. He's judging on truth. And our God is a perfect God. He's holy in every way. And so when God exacts judgment on somebody, sometimes it's, it's pretty severe. Sometimes whole peoples are wiped out by the judgment of God. Other times, it's almost remedial. It's something that God wants to use in our lives to bring us to a point where we once were in our walk with him. Sometimes it's disciplinary. And so 1 John 3.20, we looked at is that God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. And we talked about the point that, you know what, don't ever think that the sin that you're caught up in, whatever the sin may be, no one else sees it. It's okay. It's not okay. God sees it. And it grieves his heart because his son gave his life to pay for that sin. And so we come to the third principle today, and that being guilt in verses 4 and 5. And the point of of today is really that, that God has been good to mankind. He's been leading people to repentance. But unfortunately, they reject that leading and they turn to judgment instead. And that's why it says they're piling up a storehouse of of guilt, as it were, that's going to basically cave in on them one day when the judgment falls. The riches of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience should lead you to repentance, not to presume upon his grace. And that's the first verse there. In verse 4, Paul introduces this question, and it's a rhetorical question. It's a question that needs no real answer other than the one that you answer in your mind. He's not answering, asking this question because he doesn't know the answer. He's asking this question to bring light to the false assumptions of the people that he's addressing. I remember when I worked with the DA's office, I watched, they used to have a room where they'd bring these, these people in who were arrested and they'd put them in a little room and it was all videotaped and soundproof and they'd sit in there and part of my job was to run the video and the audio stuff in another room. They couldn't see you. So I'd sit there and watch these people and I'd watch the investigator as they interrogate them. And it's just, it's just ridiculous how these people, they'll lie and they'll lie and they'll lie. And, and one investigator finally got so frustrated with this kid, he said, look, I'm just going to tell you flat out, I know the answer to every question that I'm going to ask you. I already know the answer. You're not doing yourself any favors by lying. And then he kind of opened up and was a little more honest. That's how God is with us. He already knows The answer. This is what Paul is doing here. He's asking a question. He already knows the answer to it. 
He's using it to bring light to the false assumptions to the people to which he's speaking. Paul is saying, basically, in a nutshell, if you think you can get away with sin because God is kind and God is patient and God is tolerant, you're mistaken. Don't ever think that. Because just the opposite should happen. The opposite is that his kindness, his goodness, his patience should lead you to repentance. Not to self-righteous complacency that we see so often in our churches today. If you go on sinning, presuming on his grace, you're only storing up wrath for the day of judgment. And so we want to look at these things. The goodness of God, the kindness of God, the forbearance of God, the patience of God. Each one is a little different. Probably all sin before God is bad, right? It's all going to be judged. But I think one sin rises above all others. And that one sin is the rejection of the gift, the grace, the salvation that God offers us. That's probably the worst sin. Ultimately, rejecting the God who's reaching out to you with a good intention to save you. Not to condemn you. But to save you. He gave his own son to die on Calvary, to be raised on the third day. Why? So that you could be saved. So that you could experience salvation. So that you could understand the forgiveness and the glory of God. And that you could understand his spirit dwelling within you. That you could understand what it means to be loved sincerely for the first time, maybe in your life. But all mankind is guilty of rejecting that goodness, of abusing his mercy, of ignoring his grace, turning their back on his love, mocking his kindness. Matthew Henry said this on Romans 2, 4. He said, there is in every willful sin an interpretive uh, contempt of the goodness of God. In other words, what he's saying is whenever you or I sin, we show contempt for God's goodness. Back in the Old Testament, the book of Hosea, Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, God says this, When Israel was a child, then I loved them. And he goes on in verses 4 and 7, and he says, I, I drew them with cords of a man, with bands of love. You can, you can kind of hear the, the, in the phraseology here that he uses, the love that he has for Israel. And I was to them... As they that take off the yoke of their jaws, and I laid food before them, and my people are bent to backsliding from me. So many times God is trying to reach out to us, and we're just in our willful disobedience rejecting his love, rejecting his grace. And God continues with love and with tenderness and with graciousness and kindness and mercy. He continues to reach out just like he continued to reach out to Israel. Yet they drew away from him. Let's look at this subject of God's goodness, God's kindness in verse 4. He says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness? That word there, presume, it means basically to grossly underestimate the value 
or the significance of something. Not just underestimated a little bit. No, you're, you're grossly misunderstanding the value or the significance of something. It's, it's a failure to assess the true worth of something. So it refers here to people who make light of the riches of God's kindness. When people turn their back, when people despise the mercy of God, that's probably the blackest of all sins. Because there's no hope after that. The only thing that's left is judgment. Every person alive on the face of the earth has personally experienced the goodness of God. We all have. In many ways. I mean, the Bible says that the Lord causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. You know, that's a blessing. I mean, think about it. Think if God said, you know what, if you just have one bad guy on your block, you're not, block, you're not getting no rain. Sorry, Charlie. No. He doesn't do that. He says, no, you know what, I'm going to let the rain fall on everybody. Just and the unjust. The righteous and the unrighteous. He gives us food to eat. Have you ever thought about that? That you, you don't have want for food. I, I, I would probably almost bet anything that none of us here go a day for want when it comes to food, when it comes to drink. It's always there. You go to the, the cupboard and it's there. If it's not there, you go to the store and you buy it. I remember when I was in college, I wasn't a very good steward of my, my this student uh, loans that I had. And uh, I remember at one semester, pretty much things were running out. And uh, I had uh, kind of reached the end of my limit for the little trust fund that my parents had left me. And so I remember many days thinking, man, I just wish I could go to Burger King and buy one of those Chick-fil-A, you know, those filet sandwiches. I mean, I need to eat something. This summer, the cafeteria is closed. You got to buy your own food. So, you know, it was pretty much up to me. And I remember going sometimes a day or two hungry, thinking this is ridiculous. I got I to figure out a different way to handle this stuff. But you know what? For the most part, we don't know what hunger is in this country. We just don't. God gives us food to eat. He gives us fuel to warm our houses or to cool our houses when it's warm or when it's hot. Praise the Lord for air conditioning, right? I mean, oh, it's last week. Some of those days were... He gives us water to quench our thirst. You know, there are parts, places in the world today where they don't have clean water to drink. I, I can't imagine that. I just can't imagine going to a place where you couldn't just go to a faucet and just drink the water. And I'm, not th- I'm not just saying because you're a visitor. Like when we went to India, we couldn't drink the water out of the tap. But they, had, they could. They had water. They watered things with it and everything. They had more than enough water. But could you imagine just not having any water? He gives us the blue sky. We were driving around the other day. The Bay Area went up to the Jelly Belly factory and 
and we're driving across the bridge, and I'm thinking, man, it, I mean, outside of the traffic and all the liberal people and everything, this is a beautiful place to live. <laughs> I think that's why so many conservative people put up with it. It's really a beautiful place to live. My grandson said the other day, does it ever rain here? <laughs> you know, it seems like every time we come, it's just nice. Every day is a nice day. He gives us the warm sun, the green grass, the beautiful mountains, the snow peaks on them. Not only that, but he gives us family. He gives us people that we can love, that we can have relationships with. He gives us friends. He gives us the body of Christ. We can gather together, pray and study God's word together. In every way, God has demonstrated his kindness, not just to us, but to everybody. Everybody. Let's look at this word, kindness. Paul uses this the same word in the book of Galatians in the list of the fruit of the Spirit, right? Ephesians 5.22. His kindness points to the many good gifts that he bestows on a rebellious human race. It's not like he's saying, okay, the only people that are going to be under my kindness or my goodness, are, are just the goody two-shoes, the people that go to church and trust in Jesus. No, everybody is kind of under the kindness of God, for this period of time at least. He gives us all the things we just mentioned. He treats us far better than we deserve. Forget who it was I asked somebody, hey, how you doing today? He goes, better than I deserve. I thought, wow, that's an interesting question or an answer. You know, I thought that's interesting. We're all doing better than we deserve. And it speaks of all God's benefits, His many kindnesses, many goodness, the goodness that He shows to us. And then He uses that word forbearance or long-suffering. It means basically to hold back. It means to literally hold back judgment. That you deserve judgment, but, but God is holding it back. It points out to the fact that, you know what? He does not strike us dead instantly when we sin. That's God's forbearance. If he did that, he would be totally justified in doing that. Do you understand that? I mean, the moment you sin, God could just go, boom, you're a crispy critter. You're done. You're dead. I'm done with you. I mean, how many times... Have we known what is right to do and we haven't done it? How many times? I mean, can we even count? God could have struck us dead on hundreds of occasions. And he would have been perfectly just to do so. But he didn't. Because of his forbearance. Because of his tolerance. I don't know about you, but I thank God for that. Praise God that he's not short-tempered. That leads us to the next thing, his patience, right? Original word for this, makrothumia, refers refers to long-suffering. It it has the idea that, that one has the power to avenge. They have the right to avenge, but you know what? They don't. And that's probably one of the greatest characteristics of our God. God's patience. It literally means long on wrath. 
slow to anger. He gives us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to turn to Him, to repent, to turn away from our sin and turn to the Savior. That's what repent means. It means a change of mind. It means you're doing your thing the way you want to do it and you come into contact with the truth of God and you realize what you're doing is not right and you correct it. You turn to the Savior. You turn to the God that created you. And he gives you opportunity to do that time and time and time again without inflicting his right judgment. See, Paul here is saying God doesn't just open up the spout of these blessings just a little bit. These aren't things that just kind of trickle out. You know, have you ever been to a a water fountain? There's nothing worse than going to a water fountain and, and really thirsty and you're parched and you lean over and you push the button and this water comes out. It doesn't even make it. You know, you, you almost would have to put your lips on the thing and you're not going to do that, right? Because how many other people have done that? And so it's hard to get the water out of it because it's just trickling out. That's kind of the idea. God doesn't do that. His blessings overflow to us. It's incredible. Scriptures tells us over and over that God is a patient God. He's patient with mankind because he doesn't want anyone to perish. 2 Peter 3.9, that's what it tells us. For long periods, God is kind and he withholds, he holds back his righteous judgment. Nehemiah 9.17 says that God is slow to anger and of great kindness. God isn't just good. God isn't just forbearing and and long-suffering. He basically is all those things. He exemplifies all those things. Those those are part of his attributes. And that can all be summarized into God's common grace. The providence of God. God. See, the problem is with us is, unfortunately, we as sinners, we mistakenly think that because we experience all these blessings from God, right? I mean, we're experiencing all these blessings from God, that somehow God's judgment isn't going to fall. Well, God's blessing. I still have air to breathe. I still have food to eat. I still have, you know, money in my, my account. So I guess I'm not under the judgment of God, you know. Uh, you're okay. I'm okay kind of mentality. And they begin to believe, oh, I, you know, I can kind of do some other things here that maybe God doesn't want me to do. But, you know, I know God's not going to really just judge me. I mean, he wouldn't, you know, literally do that because I'm not really that bad of a sinner. I'm not like these pagans that Paul mentions in, in Romans 1. And what Paul says to them, basically, the people that are thinking that, is if you think that God's kindness that God's forbearance, that God's patience means that you will escape his final judgment. You're in big trouble. (laughs) Big trouble. Because the whole reason God is kind, the whole reason God does forbear, the whole reason he is patience is so that we will repent of our sin. Not that we will presume on his goodness. Hey, if he's not going to do nothing, I'm just going to do more. See, that's what a child would do. If you're a parent and you tell your child not to do something and 
you just continually not tell them not to do nothing, but you never correct their behavior, they know, you know what, they're going to presume that you're not going to do anything. And so you're prone to self-righteously judge others for the very sins that you commit. That's what he tells us in verse 1. And then this hypocrisy brings you under the judgment of God. And here in verse 4, what he's telling us is, don't mistake God's kindness to mean that you will escape his judgment. He's only giving you time to repent. Well, how is his goodness demonstrated to us? First, in, in the word. In the Psalms, several Psalms there in your, your outline. You can look those up on your own, but we'll just go through them quickly. Psalm 52, 1. It says, The goodness of God endures continually. There's never a moment when God is not good. Psalm 119, 68. Thou art good and do good. Psalm 33, 5. The earth is full of the goodness of the what? Of the Lord. Psalm 145. Nine, his tender mercies are over all his works. Psalm 107, 8. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness. He sing that song. God is good. All the time. All the time. God is good, right? I think sometimes we forget that. We want to remind ourselves of the goodness of God. And that's demonstrated throughout the world. Most people today don't see God is being good. They see God as some kind of cosmic killjoy that's up there ruining the fun at the party. Or they wonder how God can allow certain things to happen. They don't understand that God's goodness prevents men from falling over dead when they commit a sin immediately. I mean, because of our fall to sin, God has the right to just wipe us out. It's only because of his goodness, his forbearance, his patience that he doesn't. And we see that throughout history, the goodness of God. In the past, you can see it with the nation of Israel. How many times did they disappoint God and he had to judge them? But he's still their God and they're still his people. He was good to the pagans even in Noah's time. I mean, stop and think about it. He gave them 120 years to get the message, and they just never got it. They just continued to reject it. You wonder sometimes what message God is sending our own country here in the United States when we see things falling apart the way they are. The message is simply turn back to the ways of God. Turn back to his holy word. Quit writing me out of your history. Make me the center point of your history and see how I will continue to bless your nation. But unfortunately, they're not listening. Acts 14, 16 tells us that he was patient with the nations. He overlooked the times of their ignorance in Acts seventeen thirty. He was so patient. God was so patient. In the Bible, he waited 700 years before judging Israel and 800 years before judging Judah. I mean, that's a long time. God is wonderfully patient even with us today as we live out our lives when we sin at such a rapid rate. The divine law, the holy word of God is trampled underfoot. 
I mean, God himself is openly despised in our society, and his name is blasphemed on every occasion. Have you ever asked, why, does he, why don't you just start knocking off these people, God? Just start, you know, <clears throat> gone. I mean, maybe they'd learn their lesson. Why doesn't God just cut people down when they sin? He did that in the New Testament, right? Ananias and Sapphira. Boy, some people learned some lessons then, didn't they? Why doesn't he do that today? Have you ever thought of that to yourself? About it? Why doesn't he cause the earth to open up and swallow Dathan and Abram there? I mean, you wonder why God doesn't do things like that. How about all the... the the apostate, the, the false teachers in Christianity. Why doesn't God? Why do they look like they're they're just flourishing? How can he let that go on and on? Why doesn't the the righteous wrath from heaven just come down and consume them? In Romans nine twenty two, Paul kind of tells us that he endured much long-suffering, the vessels of wrath fitted for destruction. See, there's, there's kind of a design to this whole righteous judgment of God. I mean, sometimes as Christians even, we can look at God and think, well, maybe he's being unjust. Why doesn't he exact judgment on certain people? And then we have to step back and we have to realize, wait a minute, if he exact judgment on them, maybe he'd be exacting judgment on me as well. <laughs> okay, I, I understand now. See, the goodness of God, that's what Paul says in verse 4, right? Why is God good? To lead men to repentance. Not to allow them just to sin whenever they want. That's not why. To cause us to turn from sin to turn to him. To long for him and his goodness. To make us thankful that he lets us live in spite of our sin. If we stop and we honestly assess our own sinfulness before a holy God and we realize what we deserve, you know what? We will fall on our knees with thanks continually for his goodness, that he doesn't strike us down immediately. Thank God that God's goodness and patience is there to lead us to repentant hearts. But you know what? Unfortunately, man, for the most part, has rejected God's goodness. I mean, we, even as Christians, I think, can be guilty of that, that we can reject God's goodness at times. One commentator said that almost everyone has a vague and undefined hope of impunity and a feeling that bad things can't happen to them. See, that's what the Jews of Paul's day believed. They believed that they were exempt from the judgment of God. And unfortunately, that's the belief of many people today. And so what do they do? They take advantage of God's goodness. They take advantage of God's kindness, His providence. They enjoy the pleasures of life, all these things, the wonders of love, children, parents, friends, all this stuff. Yet they never offer a speck of repentance for their denial of God's glory. They're never thankful to their God. It's a terrible thing to be unthankful. 
remember one time there was someone who was very wealthy and he's about ready to eat his lunch and a Christian friend was with him. He said, aren't you going to give thanks? He said, give thanks to who? He goes, well, give thanks to God for the food. And he goes, no, I bought the food. I work hard for my money. God has nothing to do with this. See, that's, that's the mentality of our society today. In, in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, Paul condemns the heathen here for failing to glorify God and being what? Unthankful. As Christians, if you're anything, don't ever be unthankful to the Lord for the salvation that he's provided for you. There was one German poet. He said this on his deathbed. God will pardon me. It's his trade. That's what he does. See, a lot of people fall into that trap. They presume on the goodness of God. We're so used to mercy, we go ahead and sin. We're so used to God's grace and forgiveness, we just go ahead and sin. We don't think twice about it. Brings us to verse 5. If you do not deal with your hard and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for the coming day of God's judgment. This is the ultimate judgment of God. The day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Well, what's the problem here? The problem is simply how people view themselves. How we view ourselves. Some people don't see God's nature as loving, good, and kind. They don't say, oh, thank you, God, i got another day to live. Thank you for the, the spouse that you brought into my life. Thank you for not taking my life because of my sin. They take it all for granted. Believing that they're just getting what they deserve. There's a real emphasis, I think, today in our society on self-image, self-esteem, self-worth. To the degree that it's unhealthy. I'm not saying you shouldn't have a self-esteem. I mean, I think you should have a a, a proper self-esteem that you realize that you're a creation of God. That God created you. He created you with a plan and a purpose. But this selfism that's really invaded our society today, focused on self, 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 me, 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 it's even invaded the church. And it's brought basically to a head when it comes to the the perspective of salvation. It's really a... Salvation, when you look at it biblically, is a God-centered salvation. Jesus... God says over and over again, no, you didn't find me, I found you. (laughs) You know, I first loved you. See, the man-centered perspective says, no, 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 no. You know, I was lost and I figured it out. I came to my conclusion and then, then I placed my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I made Christ Lord of my life. See, that's a me-centered salvation. A me-centered perspective. Salvation is now seen from the viewpoint of what it can do for us. If you ask a lot of people about salvation, about Christianity, about Christ, basically, in the end, they're looking at you like, well, what's it going to do for me? How is it going to meet myself, my, my own needs? And that's really a horrible error to make. That's not why we get saved. We don't get saved so Jesus can do stuff for us. 
we should come to Christ because we realize, you know what? We're completely undone without Him. There's no hope. There's, there's no way of salvation without a Savior. I can't save myself. My sinful flesh will let me down every time. And so what do I have to do? I have to run to the Savior. I have to look to the Savior. God, please be merciful on my sinful soul. Be merciful on my heart. Be merciful on my unbelief. And when you do that, God says, that's what I want to hear. I don't want to hear somebody coming to the cross saying, hey, what are you going to do for me, Jesus? Are you going to make me healthier and wealthier and wise? Are you going to heal my marriage, fill up my bank account, help my business do well? Is that what you're going to do for me? Because unless you do those things, I'm not really interested in religion. People have that kind of view. They also view God, really, in a wrong way. People view God as an unjust God, not a just God. I've shared with enough people the gospel when they say, Oh yeah, well, if your God is so loving, why did those airplanes fly into those buildings and kill 3,000 plus people on 9-11? Or why did my loved one die of a terrible disease? They never did anything to anybody. They even went to church. That's not fair. How can you do that, God? I mean, we tend to ask questions like that about God's love and about his actions sometimes. We all do. But it comes from a wrong perspective. When you stop and think about how God is, you wonder how... People can question God's goodness. And I think it really comes from seeing historically from a wrong perspective. Think about it. Just think of some of the Bible stories that we learn. Think of Lot's wife. <laughs> if you look in the Old Testament, we see that God turned Lot's wife into a pillar of salt. Why? Boom, boom, boom. What's going on? Boom, she's gone. <laughs> really? Really, God? I mean, this, this, this lady's doing basically what you said, leaving. And yeah, she looked back, but come on. On the surface, it seems so arbitrary that God would do such a thing. Because she looked back and saw the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, would you have looked back? Think about it. This is a place you live. Think of if God came down and said, you know what, you've got to leave Redwood City, sorry. You know, go, go east and don't look back. And say you're over in the foothills of the East Bay and you hear a boom, 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 and you see hear stuff happening. I guarantee you're probably going to want to glance back. You have friends back there. That's where your house is. It's everything that you worked for. It's gone. And it seems so... Unjust that God would do something like that. What kind of God would dole out such cruel and whimsical punishment? Or you think another example of the Canaanites. I mean, God basically called for the extermination of every Canaanite. He even said in Psalm 137, 9, 
happy shall he be that takes and dashes the little ones against the stones. I mean, what kind of God would do that? See, this is what people think. Some people are so distressed by that that they conclude that the God of the Old Testament is somehow different than the God of the New Testament. Have you ever heard that? Well, that's Old Testament. You know, now, now we, we have a God of love. We, we don't have to deal with all that stuff. Think of Aaron's sons. Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. I mean, put yourself in their shoes. Tells us there that Aaron had two sons, Nadab and Abihu. These guys had just been ordained priests. Brand new. Brand new priests. Mom and pop are smiling. Hey, we're so proud. Family's there. Everybody. It says, now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took their censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Now you can kind of come up to your own conclusion why they did this. I have no clue. They, they understood what it was. Maybe they were just excited. Maybe they had butterflies. I don't know. Maybe they, they couldn't wait for God to kind of allow them to be involved in ministry, so they just went ahead and forged ahead and did their, their own way. But in verse 2 it says, And fire came out from the Lord before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. I mean, think how Aaron felt. <laughs> God, uh, really? I mean, these are my sons. These are young men. They wanted to serve you. I think they were just got a little excited, maybe a little over-anxious. I mean, God, couldn't you just have maybe warned them? Told them not to be so flippant about their ministry? You look at the flood. God drowned the whole world. That's, I'd say that's pretty extreme. Seems like cruel and unusual punishment in the logic mind of a human being. Or you look at the aspect of capital punishment. Do you know there's nearly 35 sins listed in the Old Testament for which God prescribed the death penalty? 35. They include such offenses as hitting or cursing one's parents. Young people, you listening? <laughs> when mom and dad say, I brought you into this world, I'll take you out. They may not be too far from what God tells us to do. No, I'm just kidding. Murder, kidnapping, homosexuality, magic, violating the Sabbath, blasphemy, desecration, uh, desecration child sacrifice, contact with spiritualists, unlawful divorce, false prophecy. All those things were death penalty issues. I mean, you go out there and you tell that to somebody on the street, they're going to say, you're nuts. You should be arrested. People view God as too severe. They complain his punishment is, is arbitrary. It just doesn't make any sense. He kills one person, let he, let, then he lets another person live. He doesn't always enforce the death penalty. It's not fair. I mean, two young men commit a foolish act and they die because of it. And if you look at the Old Testament, from a New Testament perspective, you get very, very confused. You don't understand. 
I mean, we live under God's goodness. We live under God's mercy. We live under the grace of God. And we see God sometimes is unjust because we compare his justice with his mercy. And it doesn't make sense. What we're forgetting to do is compare his mercy with his law. That would make sense. We need to get the right perspective. Stop and think about God's original penalty. It was just, right? You can't look in the Old Testament from the New Testament without having to look at it from the beginning. Go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And what did God clearly say in the Garden of Eden? In chapter 2, verse 17, In the day that you eat this fruit, you're going to die. He gave a warning. Pretty clear. He tells us in the New Testament, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is what? Death. Ezekiel 8.4 says, the soul that sins, it shall die. All creation, all sin was a capital offense. At creation, all sin was a capital offense. God created man freely of his own choice. He made man to radiate his image, to manifest his person. But man rebelled. And since God freely made man, giving him life and all these conditions to continue that life, he has every right to take that life back if man chooses to violate the conditions. I mean, whenever we sin, we strike a blow at God's sovereign character and misrepresent his image and his intention for us. We need to remember that as believers. I mean, if God were to take back what he freely gave us because we violate his conditions, is that unfair? I wouldn't say so. He established the conditions. But you have to understand, God is merciful. He was merciful. He didn't kill Adam and Eve, even though they disobeyed him. They didn't receive justice. They received what? They received mercy. But there needed to be a substitute for Adam and Eve to satisfy God's justice. And ultimately, Jesus Christ is that substitute. Every sin originally required death. Not just 35, every sin. So by the time the Mosaic Law was instituted, some 30 offenses required the death penalty. That's not cruel and unusual punishment. That's really a reduction in the severity of God's judgment. Because every sin should have been the death penalty. People were supposed to die when they committed adultery in marriage. But since the Israelites were so adulterous, God permitted them to divorce as a gracious alternative. You see the goodness of God. You see the grace of God. The people were also to die for idolatry. But God forgave them any time over. He was also merciful when they committed fornication or murder. I mean, if you compare the Old Testament with God's original standard, you'll see that the Old Testament is really full of lots of mercy, lots of grace. But we're so used to his grace and his mercy that lets us, in our minds, get away with our sin, that we abuse his goodness. 
Whenever he does do what is just, we're kind of taken back by that. We think, well, that's not, that's not good. I mean, the New Testament, when God killed Ananias and Sapphira, people wondered how God could be so cruel. But I think the other side of that, he probably could have killed a lot more. (laughs) He was being gracious in that judgment. Because God is God, he has the right to judge, and he judges so basis of knowledge, on the basis of truth, on the basis that we're all guilty. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 11 and 12, it tells us, Paul here is referring to people who have committed fornication. And God basically took the life of 23,000 of them. And in verses 11 and 12, it says, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. What's he saying? God's giving us an example to show us what should happen and to build an attitude of thanksgiving in our hearts when it doesn't happen. Don't presume on the goodness and grace of God. Every day we should be thanking God for being so merciful to us to overlook our sins. In Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 5, tells a story. Jesus is saying here, he says there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. To get the context there, apparently some Galilean Jews came to the temple to offer their sacrifices. And as they did, Pilate's soldiers met them, entered the temple, slaughtered them, and they actually took their blood and mingled it with the blood of their sacrifices. That's what went on. And so the people crowding around Jesus were not asking about Pilate's cruelty that he did. No, they they weren't wondering about that. They were questioning God's justice in allowing all these people to die. And he answered them and he said in verse 2, look at this, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Wow. What's Jesus saying? He's saying that they weren't any worse than the people that he was talking to. The key issue is repentance. Unless they repented, they would also die. They were used as examples. They received justice as an illustration of what would happen to all if they don't repent. And he gave another example of the same principle. He says, Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than those who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will also likewise perish. See, history affirms the goodness of God. And he's appointed some examples to give us those uh, instructions to help us understand that don't presume on the goodness of God. Well, what's the result of all this? Basically, it leads down to the the basic understanding of the, the status of the heart, the state of the heart. If you refuse to be led to the repentance that God is offering by God's goodness, 
And if you will not thank Him and you will not come to Christ, then your hard and unconverted heart, it says, is what? Piling up wrath. You may be avoiding God's judgment now, but there's going to come a day when the fullness of His wrath will be revealed at the great white throne judgment. God's righteous judgment will break loose on you because of your rejection of his mercy, your rejection of his grace, your rejection of Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Lord. And instead of being driven to repentance because God has been so kind to us as sinners, these people are under the illusion that they have nothing to be concerned about. And so they tread upon the mercy of God, they tread upon the grace of God, and they don't really care. That word hard there, the state of the the heart is hard. Get the word scoliosis from it. Sclerosis, arterial sclerosis, the hardening of the arteries or of the liver. That's the idea here. He refers to a, a heart that's unrepentant, unconverted, unchanged. It's that stony heart that Ezekiel talks about. It's that heart that will condemn you to hell. Because that judgment will come. That's what he says. The judgment is at hand. You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of judgment. I like what James Boyce says about that. He says, picture in your mind a miser. Somebody who just keeps all their money. For years... They've been storing their hoard of gold coins in the attic just above his bed. It's his treasure. It's everything he has. For years, he's been putting them up there. And then one night, the weight of all that gold breaks through the ceiling and comes crashing down on his head and kills him. See, he thought he was somehow storing up treasure. He thought somehow that he was adding treasure to his life, and yet he was only adding to his own judgment with every coin he would put up there. It's the same for the self-righteous person who presumes on God's kindness and his patience. He judges others, but he does not judge his own sin. God forbid we find ourselves in that condition this morning. Because it's that condition that causes you to go on in your pride, thinking that somehow your outward righteousness is amassing that great treasure in heaven because you do this or you do that. Or, but actually, you're amassing a treasure of wrath for the day of judgment. He's not talking here about idolaters or about the sexually immoral. He's talking to moral, religious people. The day of wrath is for those people who will not repent, who will not turn to the Savior. And we need to be reminded of this. In closing, there was a man who complained about the amount of time his family spent in front of the TV, of all things. Couldn't imagine. You guys just spend too much time in front of the TV. I mean, his girls watch cartoons, his son watched sporting things. They neglected their homework because they're watching cartoons all the time. His wife, she's always watching these soap operas that he hated. And finally, he realized he had to do something about it. What was his solution? 
as soon as baseball season's over, I'm canceling the cable. I'm pulling the plug. I see how easy it is to fall into that deadly sin of self-righteousness. God doesn't want us to be there. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Pray that you would guard our hearts, that we would understand that God's solution of dealing with the sins in our heart is to come before him. He already knows they're there. He just wants us to realize that they're there, to confess they're there. Come to Christ, confess your sins. Turn from your sin, turn to the Savior. He'll forgive you, he'll cleanse you. 1 John 1.9 says, not just from your sins, but from all unrighteousness. I encourage you to spend time daily in his word because it tells us in the Bible that every time we spend time in his word, it's like looking at ourselves in a mirror and applying the soap and the water to the dirt of your soul. We don't need to play games with God. We thank you that you're a good God, that you're a gracious God. And Father, I pray that that judgment that's building up because you're holding it back, and one day it will burst forth like a reservoir that's overflowing its banks. And it will come down on all, righteously, who have rejected your, your salvation, the free grace that we have through Christ, based upon the work that he's done for us. Father, I pray for each soul here this morning. If there's anyone here who has yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, Lord, I pray that this morning might be the day when they cry out to God, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me to understand I I need a Savior. Show me the depth of my sin. Show me the height of your salvation. Allow me to humble myself and come to you. For us believers, help us never presume on God's goodness and His grace. Help us to walk, live and walk in in lives that are worthy of our calling to be His children. And that we're reflective of His goodness and His grace and His holiness in every way. We thank you for our time here this morning. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.